Well, Thanksgiving is nearing, and I'm sure everyone is getting their turkeys thawed and hams prepared and smoked in the smokehouse, and maybe you've cleaned out the pumpkins already and getting pumpkin pie ready. We are getting ready to travel to Tallahassee. We will go there on Wednesday to celebrate with our, my family. Uh, my cousin Brenda always hosts. Well, she always hosts. We go every other year. Um, so for us, she hosts us every other year. And this is our year. So we will be there with them. And, and as we gather in their house, it will be packed. Just like your homes will be packed. We'll have our family there. There will be Brenda and Debbie and Mike and Freddie's uh, neighbors and friends will all be there. People I don't even know. People I see every other year. And get to see how kids who have grown and people will say oh look how you've grown yeah look how they've grown two years ago I don't know their name I don't know their name now <laughs> but one of the wonderful things and what it, and this is always makes for one of my favorite family holidays is this spread of food that will just spread beyond the kitchen into the dining room into the living room into folding tables to hold this array of food. Food I don't even like, but it's there. And there's some food that I do like. Two kinds of dressing, a duck dressing and a turkey dressing, fantastic. And then there's the, there's the fried turkey, and then there's the baked ham with jalapenos stuffed in it, and then there's fried turkey breast. And, and I said this earlier, and someone said, oh, I love fried turkey. No, but no, this is different. This is strips of turkey breast. Cut, battered, and fried. Y yes, people get that. Absolutely. It's my favorite. It's been my favorite since I was a child. And I'll get that again this year. And I look forward to that. You know, and we've been preparing, and you've been preparing. And, and Leanne called my father last night. He makes, pump, he makes pecan pies every year for Thanksgiving. He makes two. One to take and one to leave. And he makes fantastic pecan pies. I mean, they're, they're perfect. They're not too runny. They're not too dry. They're, they're perfectly brown. He, he does a great job with this. But Leanne called him and said, I want you to hold off on preparing these pies until Wednesday night so that Ellie can be there with you to see how you do this. And he said, I'm sure my mother was sitting there, these are not my pecan pies. These are these are anime's. This is anime's recipe. Because that's, that's got to be said. Because whenever people say, Alan, we're so glad you brought your, your pecan pies, my mother always says, well, it's my recipe. <laughs> so we've got to make sure we know what we're doing and with whom we're doing it with. But, you know, this is it's incredible, and I celebrate that with you, and we celebrate it together to give thanks to God but today is particularly important for the, for the church. As we gather today, we gather on Christ the King Sunday, the reign of Christ Sunday. And we wear white. And we celebrate this promise that has been given to us from prophets of old to say that God is going to do something amazing and God is going to give us a promise. He's going to keep that promise and we're going to be saved by a king. Now for the past several weeks we've been talking about 
different kingdoms and how to understand God's story with us and God's story with humanity through this language of kingdoms. And we talked about the kingdom of the resurrection and how that just completely changes everything about our life and about the world because we understand now that no matter what happens in this, in this life or in this world, we know how things will not end. It will not end in death and will not end in darkness and in sin. We know that. We hold that hope because we live in this kingdom of the resurrection. We also talked last week about the kingdom of, of Jerusalem and how no matter what we are living in now, this mess that we may live in, that we have this hope that God is doing something that moves us beyond this mess and that God's love will never be away from us, no matter what, no matter how hard, difficult, dark, and dangerous this life is, that God is moving in our life and in the world to bring us to a place better, a place of peace, a place of wholeness, a place of hope, light, life, and justice. These are the things that we hold. And these are the kingdoms that we've been talking about. And as I think about kingdoms, I go back to a, a, a memory that goes way back for me. I go back to a place called Carabelle, Florida. Have you ever heard of Carabelle, Florida? Not very many people know of Carabelle. Carabelle is on US 98. And it's just east of Apalachicola and just west of a beautiful place called Panacea. Even the name is beautiful. Panacea is not so beautiful. Unless you like crab houses and fish houses, then it's a beautiful place. Carabelle is one of these um, old Gulf, Gulf Coast um, roadside pavilions. Concrete, cement, pavilion with picnic tables along the edge of the road. That's about what there was to Carabelle, Florida. Because that's where the beach, Carabelle Beach, was right there. And let me explain to you Carabelle Beach. Carabelle Beach was about as wide as this center aisle. And when you think of Gulf Coast beaches, you think of that white sugar sand. This didn't have white sugar sand. This had a wet, kind of brownish gray stuff. I don't even know if we can call it sand. More of more of a mud or a paddy. And then the, along, along that beach were rows of brown, dead seaweed just running along that beach line. Well, every Saturday in the summer when I was growing up a young boy, this was my destination on Saturdays. We'd get up early. My mother would stir me awake so we could clean the house, vacuum, clean bathrooms, kitchen, do some laundry, get ready to go. So by 9 o'clock, her friends are showing up so we can load up in this, these two or three cars and caravan the hour, hour and a half to Carabelle, Florida. And when we would arrive at Carabelle, they, they, they were so regular that the park ranger there would hold this parking place in the pavilion for my mother and her friends. He'd be there in, in, the, in the middle of the parking place holding it, and they would arrive, he'd pull them on in, have the place for them, we climb out, get our ice chests out, blankets, toys, masks, snorkels, fins, sunscreen, and there we would go. 
a mother and her friends would lay out their blankets there on the driest part of the beach they could find, and that's where they would lie, and, and they would send the kids off, go play, stay out of trouble. So we would walk out in this water. Now when you think of the Gulf Coast, you think of that, that emerald water, right? Clear, blue, green. Oh no, no. Not in Carabelle. Carabelle was more like a dirty lake. It was muddy. There weren't very, very, very big um, waves there. But there was a tide. And so the tide created a ripple. And that was pretty much my beach experience growing up. Most Saturdays. So we would be out there playing. And one of my favorite things to do when I was young growing up and there at Carabelle was to, to build sandcastles in this mud, basically. But I wanted to build the sandcastle carefully. I planned it out well so that I wouldn't be right on top of the water because I wanted the tide to come in and do its work. So I would be just out of reach of these little rippling, lapping waves and I would begin to build my sandcastle. I would dig the moat out and with the, the sand from the, from the moat I would create my walls and my towers and then I'd begin to watch because the tide would come in. And you could see it beginning to fill up that moat, begin to erode those walls, break down those towers. And let me, let me, this, when, you, when you think of sandcastles, you're thinking of these beautiful white things that are, you know, massive. You, you couldn't do that down there. These were tiny, puny, ugly sandcastles. And it didn't take much for these lapping waves to come in and just erode and tear down and just completely dismantle and erase these sandcastles. And when it happened, I'd back up and do it again. For the course of a day, I may have two or three of these sandcastles and watch what the water does to it. On the occasions that we would travel, not to Carabelle, but to St. George's Island, where you have sugar sand and you have that beautiful water, I would do the same thing. And then when the tide rolls in and those waves begin to crash it only took once or twice for the sandcastle to be gone and this memory of Carabelle Beach and sandcastles and St. George Island and waves and sandcastles lets me, lets me pause and consider kingdoms think about what is happening in these in these sandcastles Time, nature, and sometimes the meanness of children will destroy a sandcastle. As beautiful as it is or as ugly as it is. As big as it is or as small as it is. It doesn't take long for us to tear down a sandcastle and rebuild. And watch it torn down to rebuild yet again. And there's something in this story, in, the, in, this, in this happening of, of waves and tide and the erosion of castles that lets me take on and consider the kingdoms that have passed from the time that Abraham was called out of his land to go to a promised land, a place he did not know, to go to, a, to the place where Moses speaks to Pharaoh, a king, 
of a powerful kingdom, to speak to that powerful king to say, let my people go, to a time when we have David and Saul and Solomon as the monarchs, the kings of a united kingdom in Israel. And then to understand that as Solomon turns the king over to his sons, the kingdom is divided and split. And after a series of less than loyal kings, idolatrous kings, evil kings, misguided kings and rulers, the conquerors come in. Conquerors with names like Sennacherib and Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus and Augustus. And then we fall into chapter 1 of Luke where this priest named Zechariah is looking at his newborn son and blesses his newborn son and gives thanks to God for what God has done and the call upon not just him and his son but the call on the people of Israel. How powerful is this word when he blesses John who we will call John the baptizer that he is called to prepare the way of the anointed one that God is about to do something new God is about to save his people redeem his people free them from bondage from enemies that they can worship and live free and without fear to be a righteous people a holy people a just people so begins John's story so begins the story of Jesus the Christ if we continue reading in Luke this term kingdom of God becomes very important it's mentioned some 31 times in the Gospel of Luke. And if you go to Acts, it's mentioned about six more times. So the writer of Luke, Acts, has, sees this term as important to understanding what God is doing in the world. And if we think about these kingdoms, world kingdoms being destroyed and eroded, like sandcastles by waves in the tide, we can begin to see what God is doing in His story with humanity and with Israel and with us. That He has made a promise to us. When He made it to Abraham, He made it to us. When He made it to Moses, He made it to us. And as Zechariah remembers that promise, he remembers it for us. And as Jesus lives out this promise, we begin to question, what does it look like to be in the kingdom of God, to be a part of the kingdom of God? What does it mean? And Luke lays it out for us. When we fast forward to chapter 23, which is the second reading of the lectionary today, in Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 33, this is what the king looks like, the promised king. 
When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing, and the people stood by watching. But the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others? Let him save himself if he is a Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king, the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the kingdom of God. This is our Lord, our Messiah. This is our King hanging on a cross. Not guilty of sin, but hanging for the guilt of our sin. This is God's saving work. Saving us of all that we have done that is unjust, unrighteous, unholy, all that is idolatrous. This is for us. This is the promise that Zechariah looked for. This is the promise that we rest our hope upon. So what does it look like to have this hope, to have this promise lived out and hanging on a cross? What does it mean for us? If this is our hope, if the kingdom of God is our hope today and tomorrow, what does it mean for us right now? As I thought about that, I ran across a, a brief reading I want to share with you. This is from a man named Michael Ramsey as he writes in Through the Year with Michael Ramsey in 1975. He writes this. What is our hope concerning this world in which we are now living? Certainly Christ encourages us to have hope concerning it. We are to pray, thy kingdom come on earth. And so to hope that God's rule may become apparent in the world everywhere. Thus we hope to see races free from injustice to one another. For racial strife is a denial of the divine image in man. We hope to see nations so using the earth's resources and economic structures that all may have enough to eat instead of some being affluent while others starve. We hope to see war and the possibility of war banished. We hope to see family life everywhere secure and stable, happy and unselfish. We hope to see chastity, honesty and compassion prevail. We hope to see these things happen as part of a deep reconciliation between man and God through Jesus Christ. We hope to see people brought everywhere into fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. In all this, we hold in one our hope about earth and our hope about heaven. A Christian can scarcely separate these hopes as Jesus is the Lord of both 
earth, and heaven. Maybe that's what it means to live in the kingdom of God. To look and to bow down to our king. Maybe it's to honor him by living as he lived. Giving ourselves for others. So that others may have life. As we make our way into Thanksgiving, and we'll make our way into Advent, the beginning of a new year, I hope we all will consider what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of God. To have a hope that we are free. We are able to live without fear. We are able to worship the one true God who promises and keeps his promises. And who saves us. And allows us to live a life and lives that are just and holy and righteous. As I close, I want to offer this brief prayer I found in the book of worship, our book of worship. Let us pray. Almighty God, who gave your Son, Jesus Christ, as a realm where all people, nations, and languages should serve him. Make loyal followers of our living Lord that we may always hear his word, follow his teachings, and live in his spirit, and hasten the day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. To your eternal glory we pray. Amen.